Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and 11 through 14. I, therefore, a prisoner of the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves of the sea, and by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that uh, we would recognize your spirit when it's at work in our souls and that we would not suppress the truth as truth suppressors, as Romans tells us we are prone to do. Oftentimes it is very subtle in which we do it. Father, I pray that we would, with humble hearts, give full reign to your spirit to speak to us through your word. Would you do so to my soul as well? And ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. First of all, uh, as was said earlier, we're taking just a short break from the book of Joshua. We'll be here for about four weeks, and then we'll, we'll get back into Joshua. Joshua will take us through uh, probably some part of June uh, where we should finish up there. Uh, but first, as we jump into the series on unity, I want to first uh, say that I have too many words in my script uh, to make it through in our normal time, so buckle in. Um, but Pastor Jeff, you know, preached pretty long the past couple weeks, so <laughs> we, uh, you know, anyways, too many words, but we'll go through it quick, so listen quick. The first part uh, I want you to understand is the importance of Christian unity, so I want to set it up with this, the importance of Christian unity, and really excited to talk about this for a couple reasons. First of all, this series is has really been in the works, uh, at least in my mind, since early last year. The second thing is there's such a sweet unity in this place. I'm so thankful for that. And, and what we want to talk about is how do we maintain that? How do we fight for that? How do we work hard for that unity? However, I doubt that Christian unity honestly crosses many of our minds that frequently. Yet we consider daily, I'm sure all of us to some measure, the list that I'm about to give you. Maybe whether or not we're in good graces with our boss, whether or not there is a peacefulness in our homes or a unity in our homes. I'm sure you, again, I'm sure you think about these things. How about with your spouse? Whether or not your kids are cross with you at this moment, whether or not you have friends that would be willing to hang out with you. Now, while those are not bad things, certainly, 
And while those things don't express the totality of what unity means, they at least hint at our own desires for unity with people. But why not Christian unity and unity with your local church? It's just my observation that that likely does not cross many of our minds very frequently. We probably consider more frequently, am I in unity with my boss? A.K.A. are they going to fire me anytime soon? Are they happy with me? Am I in unity with them or with our kids or spouse? But why not our church family? But why is Christian unity important? And here's at least part of the reason. Because those without faith in Christ can be unified around all sorts of things. You see this around us all the time. People unified around perceivably good things, bad things, a mixture of both, things that are good but based on the wrong reasons and so on. But listen, only those with faith in Christ can be unified as one body and one spirit belonging to one calling, having one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all. And so the visual of that reality to the world can only be given by God's people. Anybody and everybody can be unified around anything else. And our unity says something true or something false about that one spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, and so on. But again, any spiritually dead group of pagans can be unified around a paycheck, a sports team, a political movement, the latest gossip, or a celebrity inside the church or out. But only those spiritually alive can be unified around the glory of God and everything that that means. Here's what I'm saying. We're the only people, not just refuge, certainly, but God's people are the only people who can display this kind of unity, let the others display all that other unity themselves. And not that it's bad to be a part of those things. But we have to be concerned with utmost priority with the unity of the church. If you can remember, I actually took this out of my notes. I'm going to put it back in. <clears throat> so here we go. The clock's just going longer. But... Uh, Jesus comes, he says, I, I came to, not to bring a sword or bring peace, but a sword. And then you have Jesus talking about uh, setting fathers against their children and so on and so forth. And there's a whole lot to be said there. But then later Jesus says, you will be known to the world by your love for one another, right? He's hinting at church unity. He's also showing us that there's a measure of priority of church unity even over relationship with mother, father, brothers, sisters, and so on. It's important. It's of gospel importance. So why a series on unity? <clears throat> kind of said, why is it important, but why a series on unity? 
If you've noticed the subtitle, it's Hold the Line. That phrase is used to describe soldiers keeping formation, especially under attack. Soldiers keeping formation, especially under attack. You can see that all over this passage in the book of Ephesians, where they are called to this unity in the midst of spiritual and physical attacks. They're to hold the line. The church and God's people have always been under fire and under attack. I'm reading through the book of Acts right now. The attack is all over the place. And if we've seen anything in the American church in the past century and even the past couple decades, it's that most of the church has not held formation. They've not held the line. They have caved to the increasing pressures of the world. They have caved to internal wolves and evil desires from within, human cunningness and deceitful schemes. But Ephesians 6 says, finally, beginning of verse 10 through 12, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the culture around us, just by observation, you don't even need Facebook to see this, or Twitter. The culture around us is increasingly dividing. The church around us is increasingly dividing. It's almost like a replay of the Tower of Babel. A nation trying to build their way to heaven and make a name for themselves. And now God has scrambled their communication abilities and they are fighting. But it's also amazing, lest we get caught up just on what's going on out there, it's amazing how much of this has trickled into the church because of people not holding the line. And I say people, not just leaders. It's all of us holding the line. Churches continue to drop out of formation, people dropping out of formation, out of unity with the Lord's church, only to become, in exchange, more unified with the culture. Someone said, Unfortunately, the church in our day has been built with porous walls, meaning that we allow the truth to just infiltrate through the walls of the church. We are not immune to this. None of us in this room are immune to this reality. The tensions in the culture we've all experienced even here both outside this and inside this place. You've experienced it in your workplace, experienced it with other Christians. In my opinion, I think the unity of the church, broadly speaking, looks grim and difficult. I don't think the, the, the picture looks good. But we need to be ready for this. Now, there is this idea of the local church versus the universal church. The universal church is God's people of all time and all place, um, where those who are redeemed are part of the universal church. And then there's local churches, where you actually live that out functionally. And not that none of us are responsible to any measure to the unity of the universal church. Our highest priority is 
given to carrying out unity in our local church. Not the church down the road, not the church of our past, but the church that we're in covenant with now. That is where our priority lies. And we need to be ready. Again, we're not immune to the divisions going on around us. Historically, just a broad sweep, at least over the past century, churches divided over different things. Going way back, it was more common that churches would divide over doctrinal issues. You deny the Trinity. We affirm the Trinity. You baptize babies. We don't. You sprinkle. We do it by immersion. Then, at least in my lifetime, churches began dividing over pragmatic issues. Like, we want contemporary music. We want hymns. We want to sing with a band. We want an organ, blah, blah, blah. You want Sunday school. We want in-home small groups. Now, I think the church is dividing over many issues, certainly, but one big one is, is the issue of authority. Our culture, just, just look around. Certainly, there's abuse of authority out there as well. But our culture despises authority. Absolutely despises it. But it's not just people in authority. But I think one of the greatest divisions in the church currently is some who want the Word of God to be the authority and some who want their feelings and or their experiences to be the authority. And this has been imported into the church from our culture. It's really just postmodernism or relativism with with a different facade on it. You can have your own truth. This is my truth. And it's based on the authority of my experience or my feelings. And what happens is these people, us included, are tempted, all of us, to bring our feelings and our experience and to be the authority over the text, over the, the Word of God. The fancy word is we eisegete the text. We import our feelings, our goals, our experiences, and we, we interpret the Scriptures through that lens. We make the text submissive to how we feel and to our authority, what we believe to be authoritative. I'm going to flesh this out more as we go. So what happens, though, is you take two things, you mix these two realities, people not knowing their Bibles very well, and the little that they do know is made subject to their feelings and their perceived experience, and what you have is a recipe for a disaster. And listen, just to be clear, I, I'm talking to every single soul in this room. It is easy for each one of us to bring our feelings and our perceived experience to be an authority over the text. We are children of this culture, whether we like it or not. So how are we going to hold the line in here when there is so much division growing all around us? Again, remember, our primary call is unity in the local church. Paul's expression is to the church in Ephesus. 
There is so much that we can do when it comes to being unified with other local churches, but our primary call is here. I pray that as we work through this, that it will be unifying for us, that it will help us hold the line. I'm so tired of sheep getting swept away by ungodliness. Let's learn how to hold the line and help each other hold the line. The first thing I want you to see is that truth is the glue of Christian unity. Truth is the glue of Christian unity. Now, admittedly, I'm coming in here with the assumption that there is a truth. There's not a bunch of truths. There's a truth. There's a set of truths. Paul's coming in with the same assumption, too. Paul, if you notice two things I want you to see, in 4.3 and 4.13, you can look at these in your Bible there, you see the unity of the Spirit and you see the unity of the faith. But he talks about those two things two different ways. With the unity of the Spirit, he says this in verse 3, eager to maintain, maintain being the key word, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What's he saying? This is something we already have. This is something that's already a reality, whether you see it or not. There's a unity of the Spirit amongst God's people. But it's also something we must fight hard to maintain, to preserve, to protect. But it's a reality whether or not we do anything about it or not. We have to, though, fight to maintain it. But then he talks about the unity of the faith. But he talks about that differently. He says in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now listen, he's not talking about your faith. He's not talking about my faith. He's talking about the faith. The faith. Meaning, the doctrines of God. Meaning, what God says about himself and his creation. About a set of beliefs. There is a correct set of beliefs concerning everything God has said about himself and his creation. There is one set that is true and accurate. That's the truth. That's the faith, the unity of the faith that we are to strive to attain. This is not a current reality for us. Something we must pursue, reach, attain, accomplish. Now, for what purpose? Certainly the glory of God, but in more practical terms, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness or deceitful schemes, so that we could hold the line and not be swept away, so that we could, in unity, hold the line and not be tossed to and fro. See the thread. Maintain the unity we already have in the Spirit. How? Through growing in the unity of shared beliefs concerning God and His creation. For what purpose? That we would be mature representatives of Christ standing together firmly and courageously in the midst of a crazy world. Now, truth or the faith in this passage is the basis and glue for unity. That's why he says that, that we pursue this until we all attain to this. John eight thirty one through 32, Jesus says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had 
believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. The truth. The faith will set you free. Will set you free. The set of beliefs that God has given to us concerning himself and his creation will set you free. But where there is no truth, or there is distorted truth, Christian unity will be hindered. And where people do not seek the truth, Christian unity will be hindered. To quote someone, when the chips are down, most people will choose relationship over truth. Now, that's tricky, right? Because we want unity. We want to be unified with people. And so we will choose falsehood to truth, thinking we're maintaining unity, but it's not really unity that we have if truth is not the glue. You either have fake unity or you have unity around a lie, which as we'll see, doesn't last. It won't stand the test of time. Something I think we've, again, being a kind of a student of our culture, something we all have got to learn to do is to assess truth claims as they enter our heads. Here's what I mean by that, to, to assess a truth or an idea that is being presented as truth as it crosses our minds. It can come from others, it can come from ourselves. It's part of what Jesus means when, when he, or what Paul means when he says, take every thought captive, take every thought captive and discern how much truth is in that actual claim. Then your emotions have its rightful place in being guided by the truth. But what usually happens is a, an idea comes into our mind and however we feel about that idea begins to drive how we think about that idea. You can't just take an idea and just just kind of let it live rent-free in your head, your emotions will take it and drive it. So is this idea true? Take it captive. Take that thought captive. Immediate, I mean, listen, this, this should be happening a thousand times a day. Thoughts come across my mind, whether from the outside, from the inside. Is this true? Is it lovely? Is it good? Is this according to the scriptures? Is it empirically true? Now, I can feel richly, rightly, about that which I am experiencing. But again, we've been taught to hear a truth, and what do we feel about it? I think when, we come, when it comes to truth, we kind of have like two options. That's kind of what's being presented in some of the overall argument here in Ephesians is that on one side, there's one spirit, one body, one hope, one salvation, etc. The other option is billions of bodies, billions of spirits, billions of salvations. That's the two options that we're really faced with every day. You can either live in the unity of one body, one spirit, one salvation, or you can live in the group or the, the, uh, the situation of a billion bodies, either under one salvation, one hope, or competing with each other according to our definitions of salvation and one hope and such. We all have our 
man-made religions, our standards. Even those who are followers of Jesus, there's a syncretism to your faith that we're trying to slowly get rid of. What I mean by syncretism is you've taken uh, the truth of God and you've been changed by God and his redeeming work, but you still have these claims to truth that are false from the world that are competing in your mind. The danger is for us to take those things apart from God and use those as our proclamations of salvation and truth. Or, and then we hold each other to those standards. Now think about that. When you take your standards and hold other people to those standards, they don't have the grace to meet your standards. And God is not obligated to give them the grace to meet your standards. God may give them the grace to put up with you, but not to meet your standards. He might give them the grace to confront you, but not to meet your standards. But when it's your standards versus God's standards, then it drives each other away. It drives disunity. When we uphold something next to God as though it has come from God, when we, let me put it back in Paul's language here. When we uphold our version of the faith next to God's version of the faith and hold others to our version versus God's version, we have immediately began disunity. We can do this to each other. We can do this to our spouses, to our kids, to our bosses. We can do this with our leaders, even our spiritual leaders. I think it's especially tempting with our spiritual leaders because our spiritual leaders are the ones who are likely most forcibly opposing your non-gospel standards. There's two, two options there. Now, Paul further urges us to walk in this passage. He says to, to walk. So we've got this unity, one faith, so on and so forth. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, just briefly through this. Because there is one body and one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, we're to treat each other according to the unity that the Lord has bought for us. That that, that is to be our, our fuel, our, that he paid for our unity. He paid for us to be together. He paid for us to work through difficulties. He paid for these things. And when we don't work for unity, we say that his payment is ridiculous. He says this in this unity idea, by walking and living and acting with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. Humility, gentleness, patience. A couple thoughts on this. Remember, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance isn't defined by the way you feel as the receiver of such. Just because you don't feel like someone was gentle doesn't mean they weren't gentle. God was not a gentle nursing mother with Achan and the Israelites in Joshua 7. He went straight at him. Here's what it means. Oh, I'll put it in kind of blunt terms for us. It means we have to put up with one another. It means when someone's not quite getting it, And let me clue you in on something. 
This also means your elders who are imperfect. Humble and gentle and patient and forbearing, even with your elders, no matter what speck you may see in their eye. Just as we strive to do so with the church. Oftentimes seeing a speck for years. For years. Working and patiently trying to help remove it. So to walk with humility, gentleness, patience. Next, by walking in eagerness to maintain unity. Did you hear that? Eagerness to maintain unity. Again, it means it requires us to put up with one another, to be gracious, to respect, to to give space. What it doesn't mean is that you absolutely, you and I cannot say we're faithful to maintain unity if we don't at least try to have, at the very least, one conversation with those whom we might take issue with. And really, that's, that's setting the bar pathetically low. But what does it mean? Having healthy conversations with the appropriate people. It means seeking, being eager. It, not just, not just uh, okay, I checkboxed my conversation, but I'm, I'm wanting, I desire to be unified, to be understanding, to be wrong even. So let me recap. Christians have the unity of the Spirit, but it's something we have to work to maintain. But the unity of the faith and the the knowledge of God and what He has said about Himself, His creation, is something we have to grow into. Now, can you see it practically? If one person is not pulling their weight here, and someone is, how that might create disunity. Now, the reality is we're all going to be at different levels in our spiritual maturity, and that's okay. You're going to have some who can pull more weight than the other. That's okay. We're going to talk about that next week. But you can see where if someone is not seeking the faith with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Loving the Lord. If you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will seek to know what the Lord has said about himself and his creation. And if you do that, then you will be walking in unity with others. But when we are seeking truth together and loving each other, truth endures for eternity when one day all falsehood will be cast into hell. You see that? Like truth, falsehood one day will be gone. So if there's anything that's unifying us based on falsehood, then that unity will be gone. But only that which lasts will be that which is based on truth. The next thing what you see is that some truth is more urgent and central to our faith than others. Some truth is more urgent and central to our faith than others. If you want, in just a second, I'm going to have you pull up that card. But here's what I mean before we get to the card. Some truth is worth breaking unity over and some isn't. Certainly falsehood's not, right? We tried to dispel that already. 
But even some truth is not worth breaking unity over. Now listen, here's a kind of a warning for you. It's really easy to make a truth worth breaking fellowship over, especially a particular truth that strikes your fancy or strokes your ego. Okay? It's really easy to elevate something you believe because it's your hobby horse or so on and so forth. It just makes you feel good. And to put that into the category that says, this is worth me breaking fellowship over. But let's talk about some truth is more urgent and central to our faith than others. In hospitals, or particularly in like uh, uh, scenes like where disasters have happened, major ones with lots of people, you have what's called a triage. They'll set up a triage where, where you're figuring out who is of most urgent need of, of care and, and, and help in this moment. And some people are deemed to be too far gone, and, and that's sad, but they're going to die. There's nothing we can do in this moment, so we, sh- we, we have to make the hard choice to spend our time over on this person who has more of a chance of living. Victims in need of different measures. Well, there's a thing called theological triage. I'm not the one that termed this coin, or termed, coined this term. There we go. Uh, uh, and I'm not sure exactly who it was. The first person I heard was the president of the seminary I went to, Al Mohler. But we're going to talk about three categories. Three categories. If you have your card, I'm going to throw it up on the screen as well. Three categories. First of all, gospel conviction, church commitments, and three matters of conscience. Gospel convictions, church commitments, in matters of conscience, very quickly, because I still have six building blocks to get to here uh, on unity. Gospel conviction, here's what we mean by that. The essential, unchanging, and eternal truths of the gospel. Things that are binding on all Christians. The sinfulness of man, the divinity of Christ, faith and repentance, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Those are binding for all who would call themselves Christian, and there's more to that list, but there's more to be said, but that's a gist of it. Second, church commitments. So here's what, follow me. Each church then has the freedom and the responsibility to build upon gospel convictions to include what we would call particular distinctives, or as my friend called them, house rules. These are things that that don't make us necessarily Christian, but they make us refuge. Examples. A church's lengthier doctrinal statement. So for us, our elder statement of faith. That's that's unique to us. Certainly not unique to history, but it's something that sets us apart from even other very similar churches down the road. Or a church's philosophy of ministry, or how they organize, or how their policies are written organizationally, or a particular style or culture of leadership, or their view of the household, meaning husbands and wives, and how that functions together, or the, the importance of their pursuit of holiness. These are things that make up a church's commitments. Third is matters of conscience. And here's what I mean by matters of conscience. These are where members of the same church should be able to disagree on these issues while maintaining unity and close fellowship with each other. 
Example, the use of vaccines, <laughs> even the COVID one. The use of different types of media, alcohol, tobacco, different dietary choices, use of big pharma or your herb garden, schooling options for kids, mothers working outside the home, particular expressions of love, grace, mercy, etc. Now, what we don't mean, what we don't mean, what I don't mean is that items that are of clear sin, objectively clear sin according to the scriptures. What I don't mean is that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. No, even in matters of conscience, someone is right and someone is wrong. Also, I don't mean that you get to make something a matter of conscience so that you can do what you want, right? Oh, that's just a matter of conscience, preacher. What we do mean that what is more important in these matters than being technically right is unity. Meaning more than having to argue your point, it's better for you to still be able to eat dinner together. Individual Christians are free in this realm to follow their conscience with the leading of the scriptures, wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. We should not break fellowship over these items. Listen, these items in that third category can have arguments on both sides. Good arguments. Now, again, someone's wrong and someone's right, but they can have good arguments on both sides. And we all need grace, and we're all growing in sanctification. We all have blind spots. And we need grace, truth, patience, and space to learn and grow what it means for us to follow Jesus faithfully, even in matters of conscience. And we're going to spend all next week talking about matters of conscience and how we work together with each other in matters of conscience. But we should do so without overly burdening someone else's conscience on a particular matter. So we're called to maintain unity in the spirit. We already have unity in the spirit. We have to protect it. How? By pursuing unity in the faith, unity in the truth about God and his creation. How do we do that? I want to give you, here we go, as quickly as I can, six foundational building blocks for Christian unity. Six. First one is this. The foundation of all Christian unity is the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Amen? The foundation of all Christian unity is the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. That's said for a very, in a very specific way. We're united around many vital beliefs. I've already given you kind of that first category, gospel convictions. We're united around many vital beliefs. We're, for some further examples here. We're united around the reality that we were dead in our sins, unable to please God. Now, that's a sad reality, but it's a reality that unites all of us. Indeed, it unites all of humanity at this point. That every person at some point, some still are, dead in their sins and unable to please God. If you don't believe that, in the church of God, you cannot be unified with God's people. But we're also unified by the fact, according to Ephesians 2, that God made us alive together in Christ. That for some, not all, God has made alive. 
Again, this impacts unity. Other vital beliefs like the Trinity, God being the triune God, three in one. Things like the ordinances. Not necessarily the, the way you practice them, whether you, uh, uh, I think the word's called intinction. I think that's what it is, where you, you dip it. Uh, versus break it and drink it separately, you know. Some churches like to divide over that stupid issue, but, uh, you know, we just kind of do it both ways sometimes. Um, you can take, if you want your, take your little plain wafer there and dip it in your, you know, juice. You can do that if you want, if that's your preference. <laughs> uh, I prefer as much juice as I can get to, to wash the cracker down. But, but unified around the view of the ordinance, that, that this, is, this is symbolic of Christ as our substitutionary atonement where his body was broken and his blood was spilt for us. These are vital beliefs. That Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. We are united in this, but it's also, don't forget, it's a point of division with the world. We're not saved through works. We're not saved through Hinduism and Buddhism and so on and so forth. But it unites us with those who are truly Christians. We're not saved by meeting each other's standards. Listen, for somebody that's really important for you to know, we're also not saved by meeting our own standards. We're saved through faith in Jesus because he met God's standards and he paid for our failure to do so. That is the gospel, the unchanging eternal truth handed down from Jesus and the apostles. This is what makes us a true church, not a perfect church, but a true church. How do we apply this at refuge? You know, the idea of being gospel-centered, I think, has really lost a lot of its bite in our day. It's kind of been twisted. It's almost become a litmus test for where we can dismiss holding the line on other important doctrine issues because we say, well, that's not a gospel-centered issue. Instead, refuge exists to glorify God in everything. Everything we do aimed at bringing glory to God out of love for God because he first loved us. And we know that it's only possible for us to do this as we are given faith and exercise faith in Christ who died for our sins and gave us his righteousness. One Lord, one faith, one hope, one baptism. In doing so, he will bring us to maturity in Christ such that we would bring him the glory that we were and are intended to do. That's why we say the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ because Jesus is because Jesus, his life and his death and everything he has said is important to God's people. Two, we build upon the gospel with particular theological tradition and culture. That's a mouthful, I know. <laughs> we build upon the gospel with a particular theological tradition and culture. Listen, the Lord gives unique pastors, teachers, and leaders to guide a particular people in a particular place during a particular season, and they're going to take on their own particular culture and theological traditions. That's okay. Matter of fact, it's not just okay, it's good and necessary. They're, these are the things that make refuge, refuge. These are things that may divide us from other churches, but things that don't make us Christians and them not. 
theological tradition. Here's, here's what I mean by that. We pursue unity through greater theological clarity, not less. In our day, it's all about finding the lowest common denominator and requiring everyone to get down on that level. We don't want anyone to feel left out. And so what happens is we let the most immature Christians with the most scruples set the bar for unity among God's people. But remember, it's the truth that sets us free. Listen, the greater the depth of our truth set, the greater depth to our unity. Some examples when I think of theological tradition, you know, our elders here are expected to, to have a reformed understanding of theology. If you don't know what that means, it's all right, don't worry about it. We can talk about it later. But you don't have to hold to that to be a member here. That's on purpose. But you do to be an elder. That's us having a particular theological tradition that's above and beyond the key aspects of the gospel. Another theological tradition would be like a historical understanding of sexuality. Maleness and femaleness is more than physiological realities. Listen, it's not less is more. It's more is more. Okay? It's not less doctrinal clarity means more unity. It's more doctrinal clarity brings greater unity. But also cultural things. Don't, not, I don't mean cultural as in like the world around us, but the culture and feel of refuge. We should intentionally derive all that we do, our practices, everything from the scriptures, not just programs, not just what things are called or classes we teach and what we don't, certainly those things, but even the way we treat each other should be derived from all of the scriptures. So the culture, again, so here's an example. Sometimes your elders will need to be gentle. There are scriptures that support and propose a gentleness. Sometimes your elders will have to be bold and direct. That might even feel harsh. But there's also scriptures that support that. And if we don't entertain and enjoy all of the scriptures, then we will want a particular cultural expression of that in our leaders and the people around us. If we build, though, our culture around the whole of scriptures, it will bring unity to God's people. So here are things like our preaching philosophy, our counseling philosophy, being an elder-led church, a a commitment to walking out faith and repentance in maybe a particular expression. A historical biblical understanding, again, of the home and what that means. These are things that are going to create a particular culture. It's going to have a particular feel that's going to feel different than a different, than another church down the road, and that's okay. That's okay. Again, these are things that don't make us Christians, but they make us the church who gathers under Christ, who is our Lord, at 1500 Huffman Avenue. This is how we do it here. Again, to use the phrase of my friend, this is our house rules. There's a lot more that can be said to that. I'm just trying to give you the categories of those items. Three, a commitment to holiness 
is a catalyst for unity. A commitment to holiness is a catalyst for unity. I think the story of Achan is perfectly placed for this idea. Listen, a church that cares about holiness will produce, produce deep unity. A church embracing worldliness is a church ripe and ready for deep division. Worldliness is divisive and stunts growth, right? Going back to that, either there's one salvation or there's billions of salvations. So that when that worldliness sets in, then it drives everyone apart because we're now competing for each of our own individual ideas of salvation and standards and such. Imagine, though, a church that begins to import values of the world. What you have, then, is a lack of clarity, confusion, worldly priorities being put up against godly priorities, again, leading to division. So a church that wants unity has to have an explicit, explicit commitment and an acknowledged commitment to be holy, to pursue it together. Now let's think about this for a second. Worldliness in the church. It doesn't have to be alcohol, sex, and tattoos. All right? So what happens though, is we often look around and say, okay, no one's going to strip clubs here. There's, there's no one's getting drunk. There's no one divorcing their spouse. Whew. All right, we're safe. There's no worldliness among us, right? Check box. But it can enter in more subtly than that. It doesn't have to look like 2 Corinthians 5 with a man sleeping with his mother-in-law. It can be much more subtle Examples, justice redefined as removing anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable. Anything that would make someone feel uncomfortable is sinful. Or to quote someone else, the the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice and never unmannerly. Paraphrasing, what is mannerly ultimately comes down to whatever makes the extra sensitive among us feel uncomfortable. So no strong language, patience being defined by the receiver, gentleness defined by those in sin and not by the scriptures. Further examples. There's a whole culture full of people who want to trumpet kindness, meaning nothing that would stir up tension. Nothing that would make someone feel shame. Nothing that would disturb the peace. Let me give you a couple verses here. Just You can go chew on this later. Romans 2, 4. Or do you not presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? All right, so that sounds nice. That could fit with our cultural, like, Ah, you just got to be kind, pastor, okay? You got to be, make sure you're kind. But then what about 12.11 of the book of Hebrews? For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so all discipline. So those things that are meant to lead me to repentance, 
that is spoken of as kind, kindness can also feel painful. But I thought kindness had to be anything that was nice and pleasant. And God's kindness can also feel painful. This is an example of where worldliness, I think, has crept into the church. It's more subtle. This kind of floats underneath the surface, and it drives disunity. Again, if those are your standards, then others are not going to have the grace to meet your standards. So you're hanging a millstone of your gospel around their neck and expecting them to meet it. Now listen to Paul's admonition, strong admonition about worldliness in the church. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 and verse 17 in a second, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Verse 17 is what they were supposed, uh, sorry, verse 17 is what they were supposed to be doing. He says this, Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. So being separate from them, here's part of my point, is more than just an outward expression. It's more than just, oh, we don't do those, you know, things like going to strip clubs and, and getting drunk and so on and so forth. Now, worldliness will more likely creep into your life in more subtle ways. How do we apply this here? We help people to know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all, committed to promoting biblically defined holiness, not holiness defined by our modern sensitivities, not defined by men, not defined by women, but holiness defined by our Lord. We're always working to build a culture of repentance, of sin, and faith, and trusting in Jesus as the one who died for those sins. A pursuit of holiness. Not just for the purpose of unity, but it certainly serves the purpose of unity. Four, suffering is the cost of unity. Suffering is the cost of unity. To quote someone, it's not rose petals and rainbows, but nails and a cross. Acts 14, verse 21 through 22 says this, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. All over the Bible, people proclaiming the truth, seeking to love the brethren, and are persecuted for it. Suffering is the cost of unity. Listen, non-Christians, false Christians, ignorant Christians, arrogant Christians will make life difficult for sincere, humble followers of Jesus. As we pursue one faith, one, you understand when you're saying one faith, one Lord, one set of belief, you're saying necessarily that all the others are wrong. That's offensive. Tribulations will come. I think we are tempted. I think this is particularly important for this moment. I think we're especially tempted in our lives. 
both individually, as households, and as a church. Tempted to believe that because there is hardship, that we must have done something wrong. You ever feel that way in your job? For being faithful, like you were just doing your job and doing it hard, doing it well, and it's just hard because someone's coming up against you. Or there's other general hardship, and you're tempted to say, well, I must have done something wrong. How do we know if we've done something wrong? We should humbly measure every truth claim against God's word and do that in the streams of grace that he's given you. Your Bible, prayer, your community that you're in covenant with, and the spiritual leaders that you're in covenant with. Listen, it could be that our tribulations are because of faithfulness. I'm so thankful to be in the the book of Acts right now and watching Paul and Silas now walk from faithfulness and being stoned and then being beaten and then put in jail and then set free from jail but not leaving the jails. Our tribulations could be a marker of God's blessing upon us. Listen, as godlessness increases around us, the cost of following Jesus will go up. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I'm not naturally a pessimistic person or an alarmist, but the cost is going up. Whether, I don't know if you see that or not. It's like, uh, as, some, as my fr- friend said, on this, uh, it's like spiritual inflation. It's going right on up with the price of everything else. Matthew 5, 11 through 12, let me remind you, dear friends, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's the key word, falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's he saying? What's Jesus saying? He's saying Look, your, your future reward is heaven. Don't take your eyes off of that. Know that there is a hope of a greater reward in heaven. Last, number five. I know I said six earlier. It's just five. (laughs) Surprise. Next five. Division in a church is often a prerequisite to unity. Sometimes it's a necessity. Quote someone, sometimes unity is forged in the fires of painful conflict. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen through 19 says this, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now here's what's happening in this context. They're fighting over the Lord's Supper. They're fighting over the Lord's Supper. The division needed to happen as a necessary step toward unity. So God can use, listen to me, church, you have to hear this. God can use division in a church to bring clarity and unity. Here's what happens. Any controversy, any controversy, 
any conflict brings an issue to light. The motives, key factors, the forces at work, and it pushes a church who is faithful to deal with it for that time. But if they're faithful, the result that comes is clarifying and unifying. But what we're all tempted to want is just to make it go away or to run from it. I just don't want to be a part of this. It's too hard. But oftentimes, unity comes on the other side of a conflict. Unity has to be won and fought for, pursued. What I want you to see, though, in this context is that there is good in the midst of conflict and controversy if a church will walk faithfully. When you have a conflict, again, we have this tendency to sweep it under the rug, to avoid it, to hide it, to ignore it. I wish it would just go away. We just want the tension to go away. We do this in our, in our marriages. We do this with our friendships. We just want it to go away. But conflict and controversy always reveals imperfections. Always. A couple examples. It's really easy for a church to slumber away in their beliefs. Well, we believe that. We don't really know why we believe that. Sometimes it's just because it was a tradition. It was inherited faith. It was given to us, and that's just what we hold it because our parents held it. Or sometimes we have faith, we believe something that's based on the scriptures, but it's not clear. It's ambiguous. It's ambiguous. It's, it's not, it's, it's, got, it's vague. What happens is conflict exposes those assumed beliefs or those things that we just hold because of tradition. And it doesn't mean that we just let conflict run rampant, but it means we harness the conflict for the glory of God and the good of his people. Patiently working through conflict can bring out the real issues, exposing hidden agendas, revealing the posture of people's hearts, showing us where we're too vague in what we believe, showing us where our tradition is what's driving us and not the word of God. It exposes those things, and a church that patiently works through that, a leadership that patiently works through that, a Christian who patiently works through that, will find strengthened belief and faith. What will increase? Their one faith increases. It's possible in the tension to realize that God is bringing clarity to the situation of those people involved. It oftentimes forces us to clarify what is otherwise likely ambiguous. Last statement I'll say on this is that controversy rarely results in the good of the perpetrators, but if stewarded well by the church, will bring them clarity. And with clarity comes the glory of God. One faith. Let me give you some concluding thoughts here. I've already gone longer than Pastor Jeff the past couple weeks. 
Vagueness, ambiguity, the less lines, the better, seems better for us relationally, right? Ambiguousness in relationship always seems sweeter than clarity, but you will pay the price for that later. You will pay the price for it later. This is the playground of Satan's devious actions and works where we feel closer to each other, but it's based on a lack of clarity from his word, where it feels good, Satan gets in and meddles. The less ambiguity, though, the less being tossed to and fro, the better we'll be at at holding the lie. Jesus died, church, to set us free from our slavery to lies. Right? Do you believe that? He died to set us free from our forefathers' lies and to bring us into the freedom of truth, truth about him and truth about his creation, all of it, and in doing so to bring us together And it is this truth, one God, one Lord, one set of beliefs about God and His creation that unites His people. More truth brings more unity, which brings more glory to God. So let me encourage you with this. Where you have neglected the pursuit of truth and unity, cast that before the Lord today. He died for that. He died for you. He died for us. He died for our failure to be concerned with the unity that we should have with our brothers and our sisters, particularly in the church that we're in covenant with. And he died for us. He paid the price for the sweetness of unity. He paid the price for that. And we can worship him for that today. And we can pursue that now and later today and tomorrow in joy, and in his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, for your word. Father, thank you for, for those with humble ears to hear. Father, I pray that as we walk forward, each of us, whether this is in our, with our Christian spouses or with our friends in this place that we're in covenant with, or if we're in another church, those in whom we are in covenant with there, I pray that we would see the priority of unity, that we would be eager. We can be eager if we believe you've paid for it and that it can successfully happen. And Father, let us know that any taste of unity we get on this side of heaven is just but a nibble of what we'll enjoy for the rest of eternity. And Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.